This episode is brought to you by I-75, below 14 Mile. If you'd like to exit, your next stop is Ohio. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. I'm Jameson Draper, your host, with my co-host, Max Miller. Max, you want to tell us what we're drinking today? Yep, today we are drinking Filibuster Distillery, the Boondoggler, aged in five barrels. Interesting. Uh, I mean, there's got to be a reason that it, that we're not drinking a Michigan one today, correct? Yeah, this one's actually from Virginia, interestingly. But the reason I think that today was a good time to stray away from local whiskeys, which we've been trying to do every time, is because Antoine de la Moth Cadillac, who we're talking about today, isn't from Detroit, isn't from Michigan. Yep, yep. He's uh, the founder of Detroit, which is obviously makes him a requisite for this podcast. But we thought, you know, Michigan liquor is limited. We might as well do a non-local one for a non-local guy. Um, Fair enough. But yeah, I'm excited. Let's pop it open, man. Right. Oh, yeah. All right. Let me My favorite part of the podcast. I'm going to hand me your cup. Cheers. All right. Cheers. It's nice. I like this a lot. Wow. I do too. It's very good. I mean, we were talking about this before. As long as we get a whiskey, it'll always be it's good. It's probably good. But yeah, so we're happy to be back. It's been. A uh, couple months since we've done an episode, which we apologize for, but you know, life, things happen, laziness happens. <laughs> we moved. Yes, we yes we both did actually. I mean, I had moved just before we started the show, but uh, it's been it's been 2021 has been busy for us, uh, but we're happy to get back to it, excited to get back to it, and especially excited to start pronouncing all these French names in this podcast incorrectly <laughs> because I just wanted to, to to have a disclaimer already that when talking about Antoine de la Moth Cadillac. Uh, which I may have butchered that already. Um, there's a lot of French figures that we're going to be talking about, and, and my French really just is not good, like, at all. So, Bear with us. Yes. Also, we're in a new location, podcasting, which is which is pretty cool. We're, we're in my house now instead of yours. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we had to move out when I left my two-bed. So, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're excited to get back going and uh, follow along. Okay, so the first... Thing about Antoine Cadillac is that that's actually not his real name. Uh, he was born Antoine Lomay. I believe I pronounced that incorrectly as well, but Lomay, it was his uh, original last name. He was born on March 5th, 1658 in Saint-Nicolas de la Grave. Also, just bear with me guys, okay? Uh, in the province of Gascony, which is modern day Tarn-et-Garonne, Occitane. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Oh. That was the hardest part. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I looked up how to say a few things, but there's just too much to look up. But his father, Jean Lomay, was born in the village of Camant sur garonne and became a lawyer in the Parliament of Toulouse, which is a really well-respected parliament. But from all historical accounts, his father is kind of a lowly uh, lawyer or judge in the legal system. Um, it was a well-respected institution, but his role in it was not as well-respected as we might have thought at one point. But yeah, in 1652, uh, Antoine's father, Jean, was appointed lieutenant to the judge of San Nicolas de la Gravebe, uh, Cardinal Mazarin, and was appointed judge in 1664. Um, and Antoine's mother, Jean Pechagou. They were both Jean, but just spelled differently. Yes, and her last name, I believe, was Pechagou. But she was the daughter of a merchant and a landowner. Um, and she was just a common person, which is, I feel like, worth noting for that time, especially given what Cadillac eventually accomplished. Um, according to his bio biography, Cadillac's youth included, quote, rigorous study at a Jesuit institution where he learned theology, law, agriculture, botany, and zoology. That is all over the place. Yeah, it sounds like he just went to a really good school and learned a lot of shit, so. Good for him. Yeah, can't blame him. Um, in 1675, when he was 17 years old, Cadillac enlisted in the French military as a cadet in the Dampierre Regiment in Charleroi, which is modern-day Belgium. Uh, but there's actually conflicting documents on when and where he began serving. It's not important. The point is that he decided he wanted to serve the country and was given a, a good role, a good starting role, and worked his way up. Uh, we do know that by the time he was a teenager, uh, he was there, and, and that's how he spent his young adulthood. But this was a really important time in the fabric of the world because it was the mid-1600s, and in the mid-1600s, uh, European colonialism was as high as it ever was, and they were exploring the new world, and a lot of the military spending was going towards that discovery and exploration. 
And that was kind of what Antoine Cadillac just fell into, or at this point, Antoine LeMay, as we know. He was 25 years old in 1683, and it was his first time ever leaving France, and he went to the New World, um, which ended up, he go, I think he went to Nova Scotia first, we'll talk about that in a sec, but uh, yeah, his, his father, uh, who at one point was of high standing in the town that Antoine grew up, actually lost a lawsuit that really hurt him financially and caused him public shame, and the cardinal of that town, the Mazarin, who gave Antoine's father the job early on, once he died... It was really embarrassing for the Lomé family, allegedly, and in their hometown. So a lot of historians point to the reason that that's why, a big reason why Cadillac joined the army and went off to the New World. He just kind of wanted to separate himself from his father. Do we know anything about the lawsuit itself? No, we don't. Um, it was an embarrassing one. Yeah, clearly clearly embarrassing enough. Um, there's the Cadillac's childhood is very spotty in terms of historical documents. Um, there's not like a lot about him until he got he until he gets to the new world. So I think that plays a huge role in why we don't really know. But clearly, whatever it was. Also, you got to remember this was like a Jesuit society with people who had very like Catholicism based lens on life. So you know you you don't really know exactly what happened. But either way, Antoine wanted to get the hell out of there, so he did. So he went to the New Worlds. There was, at this time, I guess, there was also another reason that he left was because him and his family were devout Jesuits. Uh, but there was a Protestant movement, actually, at this time in France. And um, his family was experienced prejudice. And I, I don't know exactly the timing of this and how true it is because France is notorious for being a very Catholic and Jesuit place. And it's really good fodder for biography if you say that you left your home country because you were being persecuted. So... I don't want to say he wasn't, but I really don't know. There's no details. It was a, just a very, very uh, cliche sentence, but I felt like it was important to include it because I'm trying to figure out, you know, from our perspective here in 2021, why this guy decided to go and do such a bold thing and go to the new world. I can't imagine what going to a whole other continent in the 1600s is like. I mean, what do you think that boat ride was like? And the whole, like, we have no idea what we're going to encounter. Mm -hmm. Like, they were discovering places. It wasn't just like he was just going to Massachusetts to visit the English settlement that was there or whatever, or going up to the port whatever to see the French settlement. Like, he was really exploring. There's a chance, actually, that he wasn't even supposed to go to the New World because in his biography, it also says that he got to the New World by, quote, devious means. He just got on the wrong boat. <laughs> uh, his name was not found on any French passenger list. Wow. Passenger ships to, to the New World. So they think he might have just snuck onto a ship and been like, yeah, I'm in the army, so I'm supposed to be here. But in 1683, nonetheless, Cadillac arrived at Port Royal, which is the capital of Acadia. So what does that mean to someone who lives in the New World, as we now know as North America? Absolutely nothing. Acadia was, at the time, a colony of New France. Um, Acadia was most of the mid-Atlantic region of the North American seaboard, as well as parts of modern-day eastern Quebec. Port Royal was Acadia's capital, and that's a small town. What today is a small town in Nova Scotia, which is like a little peninsula on the very eastern tip of Canada. The actual town that is Port Royal today, I, I cannot remember the name. Oh, I, it's... it's Annapolis? Annapolis Royal. Yes. Annapolis Royal is what it's called now. And now the population of that town is 401. Wow. Which is crazy that it's... it's That's probably what it was then. Well, right. Exactly. It's crazy because it was a port town. It was a huge... Relative to the rest of the European settlements in the New World, it was really important. Um, it was just, a, you know, it was a sea-facing town at the Atlantic, straight shot to Europe. Uh, but yeah, through his first four years in the New World, Cadillac explored the territory. Um, he explored New England, which we know where New England was, and New Holland, which is near New England. It's kind of where New York is now, a little bit below New England. So that's where he was exploring, coming across people from different countries and cultures. And he went all the way south to Caroline, which was a French colony in modern-day North and South Carolina. Makes sense. Adds up. Yep. Um, and during these expeditions, Cadillac picked up some Native American training, trading skills, including language and habits. Does that sound like anybody this else? This does sound familiar. Yes. And uh, we will also find out that just like Joseph Campo, who was our first episode, um, the Jesuits did not in America did not really like the fact that Cadillac liked to trade and, and drink with the Native Americans. Yeah. So this was um, even Joseph Campo, who was, what, 100 years later or so? Yeah, quite quite a few years yeah, later. This is, so this must have been way before colonizers completely overtook North America. 
So I can't imagine what it was like actually having a relationship and completely coexisting with Native Americans versus being the top of the food chain oppressor right. that, that Europeans once became. So at this point, I'm sure it's, you know, it was quite easy and, and probably necessary for a young guy to create relationships because trade and speaking their language is a way to deal with probably the majority of the of the inhabitants of the land at that time. But interesting to note that it's it's way prior to complete obliteration of Native Americans in North America, but it's still clearly oppressed and, and discriminated against. Well, yeah, and, you know, it's just about getting by sometimes. When he was doing these explorations, you, he, I'm sure he wanted to get on their good side, whether he was racist or not, like them or not, you know, he wanted to get on their good side. So, I mean, as much as it sucks that he, a lot of the Europeans introduced the Native Americans to alcoholism, like you shed light upon in the Joseph Campo episode, I don't really blame them for trading with Native Americans. Yeah. I mean, there are people there. You got you to gotta do what you got to do. Yeah, there wasn't Walmart back then. Right. So, no, you know, it is what it is. So, nonetheless, on June 25th, 1687, Antoine Cadillac, then Lomé, <laughs> uh, married a Quebec and merchant's daughter, uh, Marie-Therese, who was 17 at the time. Uh, and what's impressive, or that's actually a terrible word, word choice for this, what's interesting about marrying this 17-year-old woman is that she was the daughter of one of his trading partners. Some said it was actually his boss's daughter. So I don't know if this was a move to get tied in with the mob or if it was a move to he was just in love and he didn't care what his boss thought. It's kind of a power move, too. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, you kind of get into the family. I mean, we've seen Succession, right? It's kind of like he's Tom Wamsgans, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? So, yeah, but uh, yeah, she was, the, she was the nephew of Francis Guyon, who was also at one point one of uh, Cadillac's trading partners. She was the nephew? Damn, dude. <laughs> Her name was Marie Therese, and she was 17 years old. But what's interesting about this is that she was actually the niece of Francis Guyon, who was a trading partner of Antoine Cadillac's. Also, some people said that it might have actually been his boss. But either way, I don't know if this was a move that he was just madly in love and didn't care what his boss thought, or if it was kind of a power grab. He said she was 17. She was 17. So uh, he was a bit older. He was, he what, was 30 near, at that point? Yeah, so he actually put on his marriage certificate that he was 26 years old, but he was actually 30. Yeah, the math doesn't add up on that one. Yes. Uh, well, this is not the first time we see Antoine Cadillac lying. Uh, it's a bit of a giveaway there, but this this is a very telling. This marriage certificate is a very telling artifact in the, in the fabric that is the life of Antoine Cadillac because not only... Did he lie about his age on his marriage license? Uh, the name on his marriage license was also, instead of Antoine de la Moth Launay, which was his original name, um, it was Antoine de la Moth Ecuyere Sierra de Cadillac, which is a completely different name. He keeps the de la Moth, de la Moth but he drops the Lomay, which I feel personally, maybe because of his shame about his family, um, but, but either way, it's a completely different name. And although it was a lie, it was a different lie than his age lie because he was far from the only person in the late 17th century entering the new world to use that opportunity to kind of create a new, like American identity for themselves. We always hear about people's names getting butchered at Ellis Island, but when they first started coming in the like 16th, 17th, 18th century, a lot of people used it to kind of get a fresh start. You know, if their shame was brought to them in the old country or something. So historians aren't 100% sure why, but they assume part of the reason for Cadillac's name change was to distance themselves for whatever those devious reasons he left France was. Um, but the name Cadillac was not original. He likely, Antoine likely remembered Sylvester de Esparbe de Lusan de Gau, a baron and lord of Cadillac. So he was the Baron Lord of Cadillac, which was some title in France. So was Cadillac a, a region? I don't believe it was a region. I believe it was. It was just a, a title, a name. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, like, uh, yeah, yeah, basically a name. Um, and Cadillac most likely knew who this person was, although there's no there's no evidence in historical documents that these two people knew each other. Um, this Baron of Cadillac was a Baron near where Antoine was born, around when he was born, and. His father and Cadillac were both in Toulouse Parliament. So there's just a lot like of, the name, just like the name. And, you know, and we'll see we see some other things about like the coat of arms and stuff that that he did that that 
are callbacks to where he's from. So definitely, you know, he took that advantage of that. Nobody really knew anything about the south of France, which is where Toulouse is. And he just kind of ran with it. So um, we're going to put on our Instagram, actually, the coat of arms for Cadillac. Because it looks a lot like a logo you might have seen before. Which is the Cadillac Automobiles logo, which is also a coat of arms. The Cadillac coat of arms. So if you're listening right now and you're not driving in the car... Check out our Instagram, because it'll be up. It'll be up there. Like and follow. Smash that like button. Smash that motherfucking like button. <laughs> I'm not putting that part in. <laughs> uh, so the Lamoth Cadillac couple, which is, I guess, the best way that I can give them some nomenclature at this point. There's so many different names. But Antoine Cadillac's family <laughs> had 13 children, six daughters, and seven sons, starting in 1689 with Judith, all the way to René Louis in 1710. And we learn... I learned in another actual book that didn't mention it in this one that only half of his children survived to adulthood. Now, I don't have information, but I don't know how unique that is. Lots, I think it was pretty common back yeah, then. Yeah, I don't know. That's what, why they had so many of them. Right. I don't know what the exact number was of what was normal, right? But half of his kids died before they got to adulthood. But uh, given his time spent in the New World and you know the accreditations that he received while he was there, um, the governor, Jacques-René de Brissailles de Denonville... Um, in France, gave Cadillac the estate of Le Duacque, which I could have absolutely butchered that as well. It's spelled D-O-U-A-C-Q-U-E-S. So take that for what Sounds you will. Sounds right enough. But basically, he gave him, this governor in France gave Cadillac this region in the New World, which is modern-day northern Maine. I don't know if you know Bar Harbor, Maine, which is one of the most, I've been there, it's one of the most beautiful, like, small East Coast tourist towns. Uh, but it's right on the it's right on the ocean. Uh, it's right by the Acadia National Park. That's beautiful. So he just gave this area to Antoine? Yeah, there was so much, there was just a lot of space up for grabs, you know, and somebody had to control it. And, you know, this guy kind of worked his way into the upper echelon of, of French society. So he got it. So he ended up being uh, in charge of Bar Harbor, Maine. Yeah, it's, it's known today for fishing and, and lobster rolls, which mm-hmm. I know you're a fan of. I am. Love um, me a good lobster roll. Yep. Even though this land seemed prime, actually Cadillac didn't make any money off of the property, even from agriculture, which you think he would given its lush forests and, and greenery and proximity to the ocean. So because of this, Lamoff actually entered into a trading partnership with the capital town of Port Royal, which we said is modern day Annapolis Royal, which if you ever look at a map, it's not that far. Nova Scotia from Northern Maine, it's really not that far. So it was an easy trading route. Um, but he was still a member, Antoine Cadillac, uh, of the French military at this time. Cause it was back then, you know, once you're in the French military, like you're in, you're in it. It's like the mob. You're in it for life. You know, you don't, you don't really just get out of the French military. You might retire, but you're always, you're always tied in. So still a member of the French military at this time, Cadillac was actually sent on an expedition to Boston in 1689, which this is a common theme of Cadillac's life. He kind of got sent all over the place. He was very transient as a person. He never really stayed anywhere for quite a long time. Upon his return from Boston uh, to Acadia, which was, the again, the France's capital in the New World, Antoine Cadillac asked uh, the governor of Acadia, Louis-Alexandre de Friche de Meneval, for a job as a notary to make some sort of income. Uh, which they tor- which they turned down all of his requests, I, which I don't know why, but I think this lends some credence to something that I'll talk about in a little bit, which is how a lot of people felt about Antoine Cadillac, because this feels like a very simple role for a prestigious person that just got the kibosh. So after this, um, Cadillac was introduced to the governor of Quebec, Louis de Bois de Frontenac, who sent Cadillac on an exploratory mission along the coast of New England on the ship L'Embuscade, which is called the Ambush. And wow. strong headwinds actually forced their ship back to France, so he ended up going back to France. <laughs> but this is again kind of happened. It just kind of happened. I mean, you kind of. It seems like if you were one of these explorers in the New World back in the day, you just kind of had to go with the flow. Like Literally. you were, you were here, you were there. You meet this new guy, and he's like, "Here, I'm gonna make you go here and explore here." And then the wind just takes you there, and the wind just takes you back to France. You know, so by 1690, Cadillac was back in France. This time in Paris, which he had been to before, but never lived. He was always from the south of France, which I don't know if you know about France demographics, but south of France is, is and always has been, I think, kind of countryside. Yep. Um, you know, villages and stuff. So mm-hmm. this is, he was back in the city this time when he was in France and Paris, and he became a part of the Secretary of State for the French Navy and was appointed officer of the Marine Troops. So he made some really good connections here. 
He sound like some pretty good roles for someone who's turned down as a notary public. Yeah, so I think he had there was a lot of corruption in France at that time, and I think he just knew some of the right people, and some people hated him, and the right people loved him. That's kind of what I gather. Uh, but nonetheless, when Cadillac returned to Port Royal after his uh, expedition, which accidentally took him to France, Cadillac actually learned that the English admiral William Phipps had seized the city and taken it over for the English, and his entire family was being held captive by the British Royal Navy. So Port Royal, that was the place in Maine that he had, where he had the land, right? Or Port, is... Port Royal was the capital of the French New World in Acadia. Oh, that was Acadia. So, so okay. it was in Nova Scotia. So and they that's basically where his family lived. The, the English took over Nova Scotia at this time. And they held his family kept. Do you know why? Just because they were French. They were, they were part of the French. They, they just was a... Fair. Yep. So in 1691, though, Cadillac, thankfully, was able to get his family released in exchange for English prisoners that the French had. So they had to do a little, little tradey trade. But uh, yeah, it's crazy to think that. I think that was not normal, but you know that's just what you did as a as a like a officer once you took over a town. Like you're like, oh, I guess we just got to take these hostages until we get some in return. I mean, how else do you get your own prisoners out? It's not much different from these days. No, it's just a little bit more barbaric, but same shit. Yeah, I mean, we're still doing prisoner trades with with Russia and the Middle East these days. So as barbaric as it sounds, remember that this still happens. It's just quieter. So later that year, uh, Cadillac quote-unquote repatriated his family and moved to Quebec, which basically meant that he just moved them back into French territory again. So it was just, you know, formalities. But their ship was attacked by a privateer, which if you don't know what a privateer is, they're pirates. Wow. Yes, a privateer is like a fancy word for a pirate ship. So basically him and his family were going up to Quebec. And their ship got attacked by some pirates and all their possessions got stolen. That's terrible. What bad luck. Yeah, well... They just happened to be where the British wanted them to be. They just happened to be next to pirates in the ocean. Yeah, you know, shit happens, I guess. But despite his luck, uh, Cadillac, due to his perseverance, presumably, <laughs> uh, got promoted to lieutenant in 1692 of the French uh, Navy. And he was sent with cartographer Jean-Baptiste Louis Franklin to draw charts of the New England coastline in preparation for a French attack on the English colonies. Uh, and then he set out to France to hand over these charts to the Secretary of State, whose name was Pontchartrain, which you might recognize Sounds the name. familiar. Yes, there's... Fort Pontchartrain is something. I can't tell you what it is, but it's something. We'll, we'll find out very soon. There's also a Hotel Pontchartrain in Detroit, and the road that goes through Palmer Park off Seven Mile is also called Pontchartrain Road. Sweet. So, so here we start to get in a little bit of the meat of things, right? So when he gave these charts to Pontchartrain, who was a secretary of state in France, he made some money. He got 1,500 pounds for his work and was sent back uh, on a further mission to supplement his observations. It's hard to find this info specifically, but in the 1690s in France, 1,500 pounds is about equal to $400,000 today. Wow. So he got he got a bag for doing this. So it wasn't like he was making like millions and became instantly like loaded, but he, he was very well off after this. This was very successful for him, and I'm assuming also the cartographer that actually did the maps. But in 1694, uh, Pontchartrain actually appointed him the commander of all station of the Piedenhau. Piedenhau? Piedenhau? Don't know how to pronounce it, but basically it translates to the upper countries. So basically the upper regions of the, like not down in like Louisiana and stuff up in, or in Caroline, but up in Quebec and that area of the French territory, he was basically became in control of it at this point in 1694. Is Michigan included in that area? So Michigan was pretty much unexplored at this point, which we'll see by the Europeans, of course. But yeah, this was the peak of his career. Uh, Cadillac leaves France. He takes up command at Fort Dubaud. Uh, which I don't know if you've heard of, but another name for it was Mishimackinac. Ah, yes. Uh, which was an island uh, between modern-day Lake, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, uh, which is now known as Mackinac Island, uh, a very popular tourist spot in Michigan. I'm sure everybody knows that if you're Great listening fudge. to this. Great fudge. Smelly horses. Mm-hmm. Good bike riding. Good bike riding. Great yep. bike riding. Nice eight-mile ride around the, yes. around the island. If you haven't done an eight-mile bike ride around Mackinac Island, Go do it. I haven't. I haven't done the eight you mile. No. It kind of sucks. Eight it's miles like, is long, it, man. No, it's a long time, and it, it sucks, but it's just like, it's your rite of passion. Passion. It's your rite of passage as a, as a Michigander. Well, I always tell people this, that visit, I tell them how great it is to visit northern Michigan, and they go, like, where, you know? Where do I go? And I'm like, well, Mackinac Island is not my favorite place. It sucks, the, but you just have to do you it. You got to do it. It doesn't suck. You just got to do it. 
it's not the best. It's super touristy, but yeah. like you, oh, you haven't really visited Michigan unless you visited Mackinac Island. Yep. It's a rite of passage for sure. So, anyway, this is the first place that we see Cadillac in what is modern day Michigan. But he was he went here to take up command because it was a really important fort at this point because it was like the French fur trading capital of the New World. They traded furs with the Native Americans, and the trading routes went all the way through Mississippi. All the Great Lakes region, Missouri, the Ohio Valley region, basically the whole eastern seaboard of the United States or Midwestern seaboard, which there's no seaboard in the Midwest. Riverboard. Yeah, the the, the plains. <laughs> I don't know. Basically, he uh, he he controlled that. So something, an interesting tidbit here is what I found, which is not really contributes to the story, but he gave his wife power attorney to to, to sign documents for him in his absence. Which is crazy to me. Major. That feels like a feminist move. Yeah, honestly, I like it. I like it too, but I don't. I don't know if that means anything. I just thought I'd add it. But uh, yeah, so this is the first time we see Cadillac doing anything in Michigan. Uh, in 1695, he took up traveling again uh, to explore the Great Lakes area because he was notified that there was a lot of water around the area, and uh, he went to draw up charts and kind of map out the area as much because no Europeans had really discovered this area yet. He had this idea at this time. He had this idea to start a fort. In the straits that between that laid between Lake Erie and Lake Huron, which is just about right here. Uh, I just threw up the hand under the thumb. Yeah, under the thumb. Uh, you know, Lake Erie is over by Ohio, and Lake Huron's over by the northeast part of the Lower Peninsula. So, if you can I, I idealize where that is at all, it's basically Detroit. Yep. Is, is is the where that is. So he wanted to have a fort in the straits between Lake Erie and Lake Huron to compete with English settlers. Uh, for economic wealth in the new world. Um, and at Mishimackinac, Cadillac came into conflict with the church because, as I talked about earlier, Jesuit fathers such as Etienne de Carhe accused him of stealing alcohol and selling it to the Indians, something that we are learning here at Lost Souls of Detroit is a very common theme of, of fur traders. Fur traders tend to like, French fur traders specifically. Yep, whether or not the intentions were bad, it had a rough outcome for Native Americans. Yes, and uh, not only that, it made the Catholic Church very mad. So it's kind of a lose-lose for these guys, except monetarily, which I'm sure they made a lot of money. In 1696, to mitigate the difficulties and dangers of fur trading, actually, which had become very problematic in the French Empire, because they were very good at it, but there was also lots of murder and corruption because of the fur trading, the King of France actually ordered the closing of all New World fur trading posts, including Mishimackinac. So even though... Uh, Cadillac was the head of the upper countries at that time. He kind of was out of work, like actual day-to-day work once they shut down the trading post. I wonder why they did that. I mean, I just think it was, it was too controversial at the time. They weren't getting enough out of it for the people and the resources and assets they were losing. Makes sense. Is what I think. Or maybe it was a political move, you know, who knows? It's interesting to think about this time in France itself. I mean, this is leading up to the revolution. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of shit going on at home. They don't really have time to worry about people dying while trying to sell fur to Native Americans. You know, is it really mm-hmm. that important to them? But neither were the people dying in France. That also is not important to the yeah <laughs> to the to well, the yeah. royalty in in France. Keeping the peace was the most important thing to them, which they ultimately failed at at doing. But this is not a podcast about French liberation. This is a podcast about uh, Antoine Cadillac. So at this point, after this trading post was shut down in Mackinac. In 1697, Cadillac was authorized to return to France to present his project for the new fort that he had this great grand idea for. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's crazy. I mean, I know we're going over decades of time, but it's crazy how many times this guy went back and forth. It was not a plane ride. Like These were probably brutal ship rides. Weeks or months. Between the United States and France. And just the correspondence, the amount of time it takes to get mail across. I mean... Uh, yeah, the correspondence yeah. has to go back and forth before deciding to come. Yeah, this isn't this isn't just like your daily commute. And this guy's gone back. I mean, in the story, you've told at least like five times yeah. back and forth. So that's a lot of time out of your life, a lot of time away from your family. Crazy. Yep. So when he goes to France to present to the government this grand idea for this fort in between Erie and Huron, um, French-Canadian notables and government officials, basically people powerful in the New World up in Quebec, uh, were really just strongly opposed to this project because they felt it would render Quebec, the province of Quebec, much less powerful and effectively ruin the province as a whole. And because of this, and because of the King of France, basically at that time siding with the Canadians, 
Uh, it took Cadillac several years, but in 1699, he got the support of Pontchartrain, his buddy, who was the head of this, uh, the Secretary of State. Basically, he got Pontchartrain to sign off on this new fort and let him do it, and it was signed off. He, the Pontchartrain got the King of France to sign off in 1700, and at that point, Cadillac was named the commander of a brand new fort, which they colloquial, colloquially called Les Détroits, which means of the river. So, fun fact... The Detroit River, if you translate the it from river, French, river. is the river of the river. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So this is the first time we see Detroit as as a thing. In 1700, Cadillac was named the commander. And on July 24th, 1701, Antoine de Moth Cadillac reached shore and founded the fort at Les Detroit. Do you want to know what he named that fort? Is it Fort Pontchartrain? That's true, man. That's true. That's what it was. I have to say, I never, I never knew what that was. I just, I just knew it. Yeah, basically. So uh, when he when he landed in in Detroit, uh, when he pulled up on the Detroit River, basically they said he landed somewhere near what is today Hart Plaza, Cobo Hall area. Well, sorry. Yeah. We Can't as we learn, TCF Center, soon to be Huntington Center. The the look. The location formerly known as Cobo Hall. If you want to learn more about him, we've got another episode. <laughs> yes, go check it out. Uh, yeah, but no, so he, he basically right downtown is where he apparently uh, breached the shore. And uh, the, forts was named, the fort was named Pontchartrain in honor of the Secretary of State that was basically in his corner um, that approved his trips despite strong opposition from many important people. Um, but yeah, their, their wives joined them, everybody's wives that when they came to the fort in 1701, that following October, all the wives came. And basically at that point, when the wives come is when you got, you got a real fort, a real community. Um, in 1702, Cadillac left his, his post at Fort Detroit momentarily to return to Quebec to request the monopoly of all recently resumed fur trading activities and transfer his authority of the Indian tribes in the area to the Straits. So basically it was like a power grab. They had recently reactivated fur trading. They had some relationships with the Indian or Native American tribes in the area. And he said, okay, now that this is the new post and I'm here and the Secretary of State likes me, like, this is all mine. He's like, I've got a fort. You don't. So, yeah, so <laughs> peace out. <laughs> Give it over. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was not a popular move amongst the people that were supposed to be his friends, but it made him very famous. Uh, he became a shareholder in the quote-unquote company of the colony, which is basically he had a financial stake in the entire New World being successful. And after his return to the Straits, after his big financial win, uh, he helped welcoming and settling Native tribes formerly found at Michimackinac. So both Indian and American, or at this point, I guess American, but European tribes that were at Mackinac, he helped them settle. Who knows how accommodating he was to the Native Americans, but you know he still he still moved the entire community because it was a big loss for him, I think, losing Mackinac. So when he got Detroit back and was even bigger, or sorry, Fort Pontchartrain, he brought everybody there and kind of just you know he was killing it honestly at this at this time for himself. But in 1703, only two years after it was created, Fort Pontchartrain destro- was destroyed almost completely in a fire that destroyed all the registers and records, setting them back to square one. Uh, people didn't really te- generally leave. But it was really bad for them financially. Um, in 1704, things got worse for him when Cadillac was recalled to Quebec to face charges of trafficking alcohol and furs. Oh, geez. Which, personally, again, I couldn't find information about this, but it felt like very interesting timing because we had already known that people knew he was trading furs and alcohol with Native Americans. But uh, as soon as he has a fort and some power. Right, right. And he's a little vulnerable right now because everything just burned down. It just feels, feels rough. But... Uh, he was poisoned <laughs> as poisoned. A, yes, yes, he was poi- he was poisoned as a preventative measure to get him to stop doing something. I, I to get doing anything with Don't trading. Stop me from doing anything. I, I guess, but it was only it was not like permanent poison like kill you because he was pardoned in 1705. And I wonder what they gave him. What kind of poison were they doing with in the like, 1700s? Like my, microdosing poison. I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> but yeah, so the king pardoned him in 1705, guaranteed him all his titles, and granted him the fur trading monopoly he sought. And he returned to Detroit the following year in 1706, but wouldn't stay for long. Uh, In 1710, the troops stationed on the straits of the Detroit River were given the order to return to Montreal, which was the new capital of Quebec. And Cadillac was then, uh, had really no role at that time in Detroit because it was a self-sufficient community. 
that wasn't really a trading post anymore. Uh, they didn't have any soldiers. It was just kind of a community. So Cadillac was then named governor of La Louisiana, the uh, expansive Louisiana territory, which obviously has become a huge part of the Western world and, and our history. Um, but yeah, he left and he traveled the Mississippi River to the next branch of the ever-expanding colonies and really never came back. Uh, he was the governor of the Louisiana Territory for a few years, and then he returned to France in 1717 and was a governor in a region there until his death in 1730. So he was only in Detroit for a few years, right? He was only in Detroit in total for about 1701 to 1704 or 5. And That's then pretty unfortunate. 1706 I mean... to like 1710. So the better part of one decade. But... But that's about it. He really came, established his fort, uh, named everything you could possibly name after, uh, decided, like, the crazy part to me is that that's the whole reason we have this crazy French influence here, that Detroit is the most French city in America that's not like New Orleans, which was also a Cadillac territory. But it's crazy to me that he was just here for a few years and, and, and his legacy in terms of the culture and the way the city was built. It's a lot of influence. Yeah, but I want to talk about the controversies. That's with, why we're here. With Cadillac for a little bit because that was a seemingly pretty cookie cutter uh cookie cutter talk. But honestly, I had heard about this, which is why I looked it up separately from just reading his biographies. Uh a lot of people said he was just like the worst, he was really dumb, he was a crazy person, and I was just wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Um, and it's a, it's a really good way to look at Cadillac as he was a pioneer and someone who was on the early cutting edge in Detroit, but it does feel weird that so many people didn't like him and that so many people, like how he got turned down to be a notary, you know, things like that. Like, you know, what the hell? So according to the Detroit Historical Society, which is a great resource for things and I'm forever thankful for them, but here's, here's a quote, uh, from the Detroit Historical Society quote. While Cadillac is lauded as being the founder of Detroit, his place in history is not without controversy. As commander at Fort Michimackinac, he was criticized for selling alcohol to Native Americans and for unprincipled treatment of fur traders to create his own wealth. In Detroit, his glowing communities of a prosperous settlement were contradicted by a 1708 report that stated the settlement had only 62 French citizens outside the fort's garrison and that Cadillac was disliked by all for an abuse of power. Wow. Yeah, so basically he was a liar, he wasn't really well liked, he just was kind of greedy, which, okay, those feel all like anecdotes, but but listen listen to some of these. So one, I was reading this article at, from an MSU research professor, a Michigan State research professor named Bill McGraw, who has a great, greatly titled article all about Cadillac called, Will the Real Monsieur Cadillac Please Stand Up? That's awesome. Which is, is I guess, a fun... We're going to have a problem here. Yeah. Basically, it's a nice, a nice homage to Detroit. Uh, in, in other ways, but um, as we mentioned earlier, um, the name Cadillac wasn't even his name. He just came up with it when he moved to the New World, which yes, it was something that a lot of people did in the New World, but as somebody in a position of power, it was a little weird. Uh, he mentioned that he was 26 years old when he got married, when he was actually 30. Uh, also on his marriage certificate, he said that his father was, quote, a titled counselor at the celebrated Parliament of Toulouse, which his father did technically work at the Parliament of Toulouse, but he was a nobody, basically. And his mother was, he said his mom came from the Malenfants family, which was a really royal family. She didn't. She was a common woman. Uh, he totally lied about his parents' upbringing, which lends further credence to the fact that he was embarrassed about his upbringing. But also, all lies. Um, the Cadillac coat of arms, which we talked about, is really famous and is now a seminal logo in American culture of Cadillac cars. So that whole coat of arms which Cadillac said symbolized the, quote, courageous origins of a noble family, quote, wisdom and, quote, valiant conduct during the Crusades. None of that's true. Um, we actually don't, he actually, I'm sure historians know, but he actually didn't really know what a lot of the coat of arms meant. He just stole the ideas from a lot of other coat of arms he saw in southern France, just like his name and just like his age and just like his family. So he was basically just living a lie. Yeah, it sounds to me like this guy had a bit of an identity crisis. Yes, he definitely did. It seems like he got over it by just, just vehemently lying. But in 1706, Philippe Rigaud de Vaudrill, the governor general of New France, actually said, quote, Cadillac is so much in the habit of stating what is untrue that it is almost impossible for him to write otherwise. Which feels pretty telling about him yeah. as a person, is that this guy is just obsessed with lying. Um, 
W.J. Eccles, uh, an expert on 18th century Canada, echoed many contemporary historians when he wrote that Cadillac was, quote, one of the worst scoundrels ever to set foot in New France. Scoundrel. Yeah, that's that's a that's that's harsh words. That's fighting words, yep. man. That's fighting words. But yeah, no, consi- considered to be a failure in Nova Scotia as a military leader by many historians, uh, Cadillac succeeded as a fur merchant by just selling unlimited quantities of brandy to the Indians, which we have already talked about is very problematic. And apparently, he also quote fleeced the couriers who transported the furs just for his own wealth. Um, and a fort official reported, quote, never has a man amassed so much money in such a short time. So he seemed like this guy that would just kind of fuck people over on all these get-rich-quick schemes. So, yeah. Um, and just for, you know, a little bit of a topper here, Jean de Langlaise, who is a Belgian-American historian from the 1900s, who was also a Jesuit priest, which feels like I should mention that in terms of bias. Uh, he was a Jesuit priest as well. But he asserted that Cadillac was clinically insane and was only tolerated by the royal court because the royal court was corrupt. He said, quote, the perhaps the most outstanding characteristic of Cadillac was his stupidity. So this is a lot of different angles coming at you about how terrible Cadillac was. Um, but I, I want to read this, this, little, this little quote from the Will the Real Monster Cadillac Please Stand Up, uh, this article by Bill McGraw, because he, he, it's, it's great. So... Here we go. In its first decade, Detroit had become so filled with problems and bloodshed among the Indians, and Cadillac had become so contentious that even his longtime supporter, Secretary of State Pontchartrain, was losing patience. In 1707, Pontchartrain dispatched envoy Francois Clarembeau d'Agramont to inspect Detroit. D'Agramont's report was so devastating, Cadillac was, quote, generally hated by French and Indians alike. Cadillac was also a greedy despo who extorted money from tradesmen and lied to officials in Paris about the number of acres under cultivation and the number of inhabitants at the outpost, Diagramont wrote. Cadillac's great experiment to assemble the Indians to live happily together like he did in Mackinac was a failure, Diagramont concluded. Instead of coming together to advance French arms against the English, the opposite was true. The Indians were starting to unite against the French. <laughs> Wow. So basically he had this whole idea of like, I'm going to get the Indians to like me. I'm going to make them, you know, see that I'm really a good dude and I do good things and we're going to be all happy and fuck the English. And And it turns out they were like, wow, this guy sucks. (laughs) This guy sucks. We'll do anything to get his ass up out of here. And so to continue this, this article by 1709, Pontchartrain was upbraiding Cadillac for his greed and self-serving conduct. Quote, nobody can find any objection to the profits which you have made or will make at Detroit as long as you are using just and legal means, Pontchartrain wrote. Less than a year later, Cadillac was sent to Louisiana. So basically, Pontchartrain was like, I've been championing this guy for so long. I can't just like, he can't just become a pariah, you know, like that would be Mm -hmm. career suicide. So he's like, you know what? Just go to this meaningless place, Louisiana. I'm sure you'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well... To me, I mean, Cadillac's story is interesting, right? I'm just, I'm comparing it to that of um, Joseph Campo, just mostly because of the times. I think it's important to note that, you know, late 1600s through early 1800s, it wasn't very common to immigrate to a new country and make something of yourself. The American dream hadn't existed yet. And... I'm fascinated to hear the stories of these kinds of people. Cadillac, no different. Because there's a mindset and there's a grit and there's uh, like a, there's there's the, the motivation to stop at nothing to achieve wealth and power and fame and, le- and legacy that we celebrate nowadays. And it's it's the American dream. It's, you know, you, especially for those who immigrate from another country, you come to a new land and you, you have an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit and you do what you can to make the most amount of money and to provide for your family. But a lot of the people who we talk about who did this back then were hated because it was, I feel like it was a lot more clear and there weren't as many channels to, to kind of be, to kind of veil the evilness right in this case i mean it's just evilness joseph campo owned slaves 
he he traded with Native Americans and sold them alcohol. Cadillac, similarly, traded with Native Americans, gave them alcohol. And whether or not the fact that that was hated, I mean, to me, it sounds problematic that the Europeans didn't like that he was doing business with Native Americans. But he was doing it, and I think that these you know ulterior motives and the profit incentive is clear. And it's interesting that this, the profit incentive was not celebrated back then. No, and I, I, I think that's partly due to... I don't want to be offensive, so I'm going to tread lightly here, but it, I think it has a lot to do with the culture at that time and how there was... Like in America, one of the best things about America, and sometimes we're not very good at it, but the, one of the best parts about America is the separation of church and state, mm-hmm. how it's a thing and it really should be a thing. Um, but in Europe in the 15, 16, 1700s, it wasn't. Uh, religion basically dictated law and government. And Catholicism, at that time, Catholicism is, is really has a focus on humility and modesty and not greed was not celebrated yes greed and 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 the striving for greatness and being a god was just something that catholicism does is not really part of the views of catholicism Mm -hmm. so i think because of that it was the first reaction for a lot of the people in the society to be like wow look at how greedy he is that's really bad Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, he didn't have great relationships. His family didn't have great relationships with any of the any of the the heads of the churches, whether it was in France or even when he came to North America. But I love hearing these stories because there are countless parallels between American society today. It just wasn't as common. It wasn't as celebrated. But at the end, it's it's the same thing. You come up with ideas to earn money. And if you're the one who is providing the resources and the capital, you're the one who earns the money. But in this case, you know, it's insane to hear all these all these accounts and all this controversy about him because to me, everything he did sounds like what Dan Gilbert in Detroit is doing or what, you know, Jeff Bezos, for example. And they're, they're definitely um, judged to a fair degree. But it's still that's the that's the the epitome of the American dream is ultra rich status at the expense of the poor, the working class, whoever, you know, and maybe in this case, it's the Native Americans, those who are the regular people inhabiting the world and you are using your power, your fame or just in this case, fake power. And he I mean, like he said, he came in with a whole new identity and lied about his past and it got him to the top. But at the end, <laughs> he still ended up screwed. But I mean, it's I'm you can't forget that the legacy he left, no matter how many negative accounts there are of him, the legacy he left is incomparable. I mean, it's it's he he created Detroit. He created a fort. You know, he he lost basically in Mackinac. Didn't work. So he made his moves and he made it happen in Detroit. And that that story is phenomenal. And I say this every single time. I love that we talk about all aspects because as always, it's nuanced. And it's it's really cool to celebrate the fact that Antoine de la Moth Cadillac, who has a car named after him, whose car is, you know, the, the name Cadillac is what you do to call something the best. Oh, this is the Cadillac of TVs. This is the Cadillac of washing machines. Yeah, next time you say something's the Cadillac, just remember you're calling it the stupidest version <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but well, at that's... the same time, he was considered stupid. And was he actually stupid? Or was stupidity just, or I guess in this case, was, was competency just measured differently? Right. I mean, there's definitely a, a, a legit chance that that's, there, there's some truth to that. I just think it's interesting that, like, you know, historians, I've heard this for years, historians shouting like, actually, he was an idiot. Like, actually, he was so stupid. I, I'm sure he was. But it doesn't matter. Like Everyone was stupid back then. Well, I'm not even like. that. It just doesn't matter, like, whether or not he's say. stupid. Like, we're 300, 400 years later, and every single person in America knows the name Cadillac. I mean, that's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. Like, And he helped found, like, one of the most important cities in American history. So... 
even if he was stupid, which I'm sure he probably seemed like he was. Actually, he reminds this is a really weird comparison, but he reminds me a lot. I was listening to my favorite podcast, Behind the Bastards, about L. Ron Hubbard. Nice. And Scientology. And and it was interesting yeah, he because got to where he was from just lies. That's exactly. So I'm not even talking about the the intelligence or the whatever the credence of Scientology, but he literally just had the most obscene lies ever about everything and just manifested it into being the truth. Like he always said, like in his books, his diaries, when he was a kid, like I'm going to be important and I don't care how I'm going to do it. And he started just these, the most absurd lies you can think of. And people just ate it up and believed it. And he turns out that like, whether you like it or not, L Ron Hubbard has had a wild, well had, he's dead, but had a wildly successful life for how hated he might be by a lot of people, wildly successful life. It's interesting because I celebrate that success. I celebrate Cadillac. In a weird way, I celebrate L. Ron Hubbard's success because, I mean, and that's, and, you know, maybe I'm questioning myself now, but to me, that shows the power of the human psyche. It, 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 it really is. It's the power of omitting any environmental or any cognitive, you know, for example, limitations you have otherwise if, known as the absence of reason yes if yes. you if you have the grit and you have the diehard mentality to make something happen whether it's l ron hubbard inventing a cult religion or antoine cadillac doing lying his way into being the leader of a new yeah, world getting yeah. native americans drunk and fucking over fur traders and merchants to get himself the power and the fame even though he completely invented his identity when he came to the U.S. At first, I celebrate that that sort of success because I think that there is a value in in that in that story. I mean, although the United States of America has greatly developed and has become a global superpower, the American dream is still considered the American dream. It's a new land. It's a melting pot. And back then it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as colonized. It was not, I mean, it wasn't developed like it is today, clearly, but it's a new land without a clear cultural history that we allow to show. I mean, there's a native American history that's, that goes back forever, but you look at Europe, you look at Asia, you look at the Middle East. I mean, there's, there's thousands of years of history of religious history. You look at the United States and it's super unfortunate that we don't celebrate the history of native Americans the way we, we should but to a European, it's a brand new, it's a, blank, it's a blank canvas. It's a canvas where you can reinvent yourself and where you can forget about your, your past, your family's past, any limitations that you were given and work your ass off to get to where you are. And it sucks that he was hated. I guarantee he treated people unfairly and it's clear that he lied. But he did some cool shit. And it sucks. His city burnt down. He got poisoned. <laughs> he got sent to Louisiana. Like, clearly it didn't his, end well for him. His family got kidnapped. Yeah, his family got kidnapped. He got kidnapped all his shit stolen Brits. by pirates. Yeah, pirates, <laughs> poison, family. Are, I mean, like, yeah, it sucks. And, and you know, you can call that karma. You can call that this or that. He, he Bad shit happened to him. And, and the, the end of his life doesn't sound like it was what he wanted it to be when he was at the peak of his success. Well, I did read that at the end of his life, he got cleared of all wrongdoings by the That's French cool. government. So some, some solid... And Kwame's still in prison? Well, not anymore, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, since we did the Kwame episode, that man's home. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. That's He's awesome. down in Texas, right? Yep. Well, he was he was hanging out in Detroit for a little bit, oh, getting he? his haircut and stuff. Yeah, oh, that's cool. We should have went and looked for him. Yeah, be like, dude, listen to our podcast. I don't think he would have liked it. No, I don't think he would have either. I'd have been interested. He wouldn't like that people were covering him. That's true. Um, but no, I, I I like what you're saying about about Cadillac because I personally, my personal view on Cadillac was like, nah, this guy sucks, but also did some cool stuff, but also sucks. But I think the best way to put it in an objective sense is he is one of the first like perfect embodiments of the American dream. Yeah, yeah, really, or really better is. or worse. And I'm, that's what is so fascinating to me is that this was a time where that mindset just didn't exist. It was loyalty to the church. It was church first, and that's how government, that's how society, that's how everything was based. And he kind of went against the grain on all of that. 
And I, I think it's he's one of the more important people to note, not only because he invented and, and created Detroit, but because it's it's uh, it was he was an uncommon kind. And I also think that maybe that's possible that that's why a lot of these historical accounts consider him stupid, bad, terrible. I bet he wasn't very different from anyone in the United States today. Well, I think partly what it is is two things. I think history has done him really well. Because if you look at most of these people that are calling him stupid, it's all old resources, right? From like before like the 1800s or even the 1700s. Like clearly people then, it wasn't revisionist history. It's revisionist history. I think that he was smart. Like once Detroit was built into this absolute powerhouse of a city in the like the late 1800s, early 1900s, people like decided like it was built by this great man, which... But the idea of smart is also completely subjective. Right. I mean, that's definitely true. I'm just saying that it's interesting that the revisionist history went for him. Like, usually as time goes on, yeah. these old figures, yeah. like, you start to realize how terrible they were. Yep. But for Cadillac, it sounds like people were like, wow, this guy's, like, nothing special. And then Detroit became, like, a freaking like, booming metropolis. Like, all right, we should name a luxury car after yeah, this I mean, guy. that guy clearly knew something that we didn't. <laughs> that's something I want to look into is... Um... If there's anything on why why Cadillac was named Cadillac, yeah, why the specifically car. the, the car? car. Sorry, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, obviously it's after Antoine Cadillac, but I wonder well, why that line. Yeah, exactly. Like why the? I wonder if Cadillac, the Cadillac line of of uh, GM, if it was even G, if it was started by G, I don't know the history, but I'm interested if it was if it was um, intentional. So I'm 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 reading further in this. Uh, Bill McGraw, will the real Mansoor Cadillac mm-hmm. please stand up? Every time I mention it, I have to read it out, the whole thing. But So this this historian here, or Zoltvani, who studied the Cadillac myth, his whole thesis on the Cadillac myth, uh, said that one of the reasons that, his, that he's also well-loved is, one, his correspondences to the king, taking out of context, apparently paint him like he's like this gifted visionary, fighting against like the man mm-hmm. which people like and two he was one of the only french figures in america to defy the catholic church at the time which really endeared him to the protestant community which is interesting oh, that is interesting because the protestants hated his family back in france because yeah. they were jesuits but when he protests the catholics they're like oh well this oh, guy's that's, that's our whole thing this guy's sweet that's our whole thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's let him in <laughs> yeah so the the final quote from zoltvani when he when he said that was Thus, with the passing of time, an individual who had never been anything but a cunning adventurer in search of personal enrichment came to be regarded as one of the great figures of the French regime. It's an interesting way to put it. Because, yeah, it is. I don't think, you're right, I don't think calling him just a simpleton, stupid, is, is, is enough. I feel like that's a bit of a generalization. I feel like he might have been hard-headed and kind of like an idiot, but I don't think he was like incompetent, you know? Like, clearly he got over here. He was able to weasel his way into the right lies, you know? So clearly he wasn't completely incompetent. I just think, yeah, he was just this dude that this freaking trailblazing rogue, I'm only in it for myself type dude that's now been painted as like a legend in the French regime because of what he created, what it became. Like, I would be interested to see what you'd tell Cadillac if you he was alive. If you could bring him back to life, you'd be like, yeah, the city that you built, so here we are, 300 years later. We have a lot to tell you. Yes. We have a lot to tell you. Check out this podcast, yes. dude. Because <laughs> if you saw it now, like this, this, this city with all this blight and 600,000 people, he'd be yeah. like, oh, I, I did all right. Like, you don't even know, man. Yeah, if you saw we it, had it. If you saw it 100 years we ago. We had it. <laughs> yeah. If you saw it in the in the 1920s. Yeah. But yeah, man, it's 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 interesting to, to look at Cadillac in that light and kind of wonder how history has shaped the narrative on him as we look at i feel like with every person we talk about right like whether it's short history or long history long time history hasn't done joseph campo very well because he seemed like actually might have been a cool dude that i mean he had his problems he had his slaves but he he had some positive aspects that have just been totally forgotten in history kobo Time has not done him very no, well. Well, nothing has done him well. He's no, just well, bad. Yeah, he's bad. But I'm he's saying, a bad guy. But meanwhile, like Kwame, I would say time has done Kwame well. Yeah. You know, people started to realize the 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 bad parts of this criminal justice system and how he, even though you can make, you can still say he did something wrong and still say he got railroaded. Like, even though it's only been 10, 15 years, time has done Kwame well. 
Time has done Antoine de la Moth Cadillac very well. Yes. Very, very well. Yes. It's hard not to when you have a luxury car named after you. Yeah, most people you ask about Cadillac, they don't know anything. I bet most people outside of Detroit don't know anything about Cadillac other than that it's a car. You ask most people in Detroit, I think a lot of people would be able to tell you that Cadillac like. is Detroit. Something about Cadillac is very Detroit. Yeah. There's a Cadillac Boulevard on the east side. And obviously, so a few statues here and there. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that that's Antoine de la Moth Cadillac for you, man. The founder of Detroit was actually maybe possibly an idiot. Who knows? But also, he founded Detroit, so there's that. So that's pretty cool. And uh, we wouldn't have this podcast without him. Yep. End thank you, day. Antoine. Thank you. And thank you, Jameson. That was a great recap. Yeah, thanks for, th- thanks, for uh, thanks for coming along on this on this ride with me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram is Lost Souls of Detroit, and our Twitter is Souls Detroit. Now, don't forget to subscribe to us on your preferred streaming platform. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars. As a growing podcast, this helps us tremendously and will allow us to keep it going. Don't be afraid to hit us up on social media with requests on a soul you want us to discuss or a spirit you recommend that we drink. <laughs>